Hello and welcome to Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Aaliyah, and if I was the real-life version of a character in a Shakespeare play, who would I want to be? Well, it's been a long day, and so that kind of day that even though I was an English major, the only Shakespeare character I can remember by name is Bottom, which probably means I would be Bottom. <laughs> Well, at least you have a fairy princess falling in love with you. My name is Caitlin, and if I were the real-life version of a character in a Shakespeare play, I would want to be like Beatrice because she's awesome, but Ooh. I would probably actually be the creepy guard in that one that with like all of the malapropisms and like who's just really not intelligent. So that that's probably my actual Shakespeare character. Okay, hello. My name is Chloe, um, and if I were a character in a Shakespeare play, I would want to be Cleopatra from Antony and Cleopatra, because she's, so, she's written so well. But I think realistically, I would probably be Mercutio, just cracking jokes all the time. Love it. So as you heard, we have Chloe Gong on the show today, and a big welcome to her. Chloe is the number one New York Times bestselling author of These Violent Delights and its sequel, Our Violent Ends. She is a recent graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, where she double majored in English and international relations. Born in Shanghai and raised in Auckland, New Zealand, Chloe is now located in New York, pretending to be a real adult. Her words, not mine. I think she's doing great. Her newest book, Foul Lady Fortune, hit shelves this week. Tell us about Foul Lady Fortune, Chloe. I shall. First of all, thank you for having me, Ha. I am so excited. Foul Lady Fortune is my third book. So it is, I like to pitch it as the beginning of a new series because it is a spinoff of the original These Violent Lights and Our Violent Ends, but narratively it still functions as a book three for anyone who has read the original duology. So it follows Rosalind Lang, who after a experiment that saved her life, finds that she can no longer sleep or age or die uh, because all of her injuries just heal themselves. And to make use of that, she's become a national assassin. And when the government puts her on a mission to investigate a conspiracy in her city, she ends up paired with a fellow spy, uh, having to go undercover as a married couple in order to infiltrate a foreign publishing company. It causes a lot of havoc and chaos because they don't like each other, but they'll have to work together if they're going to solve what on earth is going on in their city and try not to die while they're at it. I love that so much. Pretending to be a married couple is one of my favorite, I don't know, what would you call it, a ploy? Mm. When uh, yes. two characters who dislike each other have to do that. I love that and so exciting to be in a, on a spy background. The play pretend. The, yeah. So what drew you to writing uh, a spinoff, a book in that same world as your original series? I really wanted to do a spinoff from the very beginning. So when I finished the first book, so These Violent Delights, I had ended it at a point where Rosalind, who became the main character of Valley Fortune, kind of just got the short end of the stick, like, across the whole cast. And it was interesting because the circumstances that she went through was really similar to the protagonist. And I kind of had this moment where I was sitting there thinking, huh, you know, I I've written these two female main characters, like, female characters, I guess she wasn't a main character at that point. I've written these two female characters as essentially foils of each other because they both do bad things and they both harm other people around them in very similar ways, but we like the protagonist of this series and we kind of don't like 
the side character because she's been like positioned against what we perceive as like you know the right path and i was thinking it would be so interesting to then look at the world through her eyes and i guess see where she goes from there like after you end that duology and you close the book it's as if her storyline could just end there like in the carnage of her mistakes but i was thinking actually what if we pluck her back out take her four years into the future and see her deal with that and actually reckon with the consequences that she caused and it makes a much more interesting character arc than if i had you know gone in and written a new book with a completely blank slate it just felt more i guess like you know gritty to work with most of our, our audience are aspiring authors. Do you have any advice for people who feel like they aren't done with their characters, like they want to do a spinoff, just off the top? Oh, I think my best spinoff advice would be have it make it feel different in some way. And, and by that, I mean, there needs to be a reason why it is a spinoff and not a continuation. Uh, because I think I really had to sit with why specifically my spinoff was led by this protagonist and what it would do differently to the tone and I guess the the general voice of the previous duology. That was something I kind of had to struggle through a lot and I had to work on from first draft to second draft to third draft because I found the first go I had at it, it felt a bit too different because I was trying to make it feel distinct. And then I was losing a bit of the voice, but then I was also, you know, doing a bit too much of like the, and this is why we have to like keep following along this narrative path, if that makes sense. So I think the first thing about a spinoff is what about it is distinct from the original piece of work that you're uh, spinning off from, but also what about it feels special that is still connected to the original work, right? Because then you'd also just world build again and do it again. So finding that little in between, I think. I really like that. I think, like you said, it, it makes it accessible for those who have come along through the duology, but also a good entry point for people who are just joining you now. Yes, exactly. You want to be able to like bring in the new readers, but also if the old readers return, it feels like a familiar world still. Would you have any thoughts or ideas on what aspects of a story authors should look for to keep through a spinoff and what they should look to make new? That's a really good question. I think it depends so often, and it especially depends on what the author feels is the core aspect of their work. So for me personally, when I was moving from These Violent Delights as a duology into Fallity Fortune, I knew that I could drop a certain tonal feeling because These Violent Delights was very, it was heavily inspired by Romeo and Juliet and it, I wanted to draw from the heart of that Shakespearean play. Like I wanted to feel like there was tragedy and hope in dual force just circling around the story at all times. Whereas then when I moved into Fallity Fortune, I was drawing from As You Like It, which is a comedy. So I went into it thinking, I'm going to drop the tone that I was going for, but what I want to keep is the sense of history, the sense of the streets just being alive with a kind of like boiling pot of people just doing things all the time, like the politics. And then otherwise, things could get thrown out or developed further if you needed. But whatever you're trying to achieve, as long as it stays the same, and then anything else you can kind of like pick and pick and choose what you want to keep and take away. Okay, so you can kind of treat it like a, a buffet if you have the same table there. And oh, that's such a terrible analogy. 
<laughs> no, I like that analogy. <laughs> what would you say about themes? Do the themes necessarily need to translate or are authors cleared to just start afresh with a whole new batch? I think authors could start fresh. I think when it comes to spin-off works, a lot of the times they do carry different themes with them, especially when I think about, you know, big spin-off franchises that do exist in YA that, you know, when the rest of us come in, we're like, oh, look at what they already did. Like, you know, Lee Bardugo's Shadow and Bone and Six of Crows, they feel very different, like tonally and thematically wise, right? Um, it feels to me that a spin-off kind of keeps a author's interests, like the, the what they like to, you know, fiddle with, the kind of tropes that they bring in, the kind of uh, jokes and character creation that they bring in. But otherwise, it's it's really like the world is their oyster. As, lo- as long as there's some reason why there is a thread drawing the world together, everything else can... It, it's almost like the same, the same world and different cities, I feel like could be a good analogy. Because different cities have very different feelings to them. And you can, you know, you perceive different things when you're in different cities. I hope that analogy makes sense. Oh, totally. <laughs> I mean, like with Lee Bardugo... She is in a different city. She's got a whole new character cast who's seeing, mm. like, the Grisha from a totally different perspective. Um, it's a different genre, even. Mm. But you are staying with some of the same characters. Is that a different... Mm. Like, how do you avoid falling into the trap of it being too similar? No, it, it, that's a, it's a really good question because I really had to sit with that while I was moving, um, like between drafts. Because I think a lot of my earlier drafts, that was exactly my concern that kept holding me back. I was like, I want it to feel like we're doing new things with these same characters. Then I don't want to deviate so much that they've turned into different characters, right? Because I'm still using the same ones for a reason. So it had to, it, it, it was like this, constant work in progress, negotiating between giving familiar characters new interesting arcs and developments while justifying the reason why we are actually still following these characters that some readers are already very, very familiar with. And for me, a lot of that came into the fact that uh, we switched decades. So in Shanghai particularly, the 20s and the 30s felt very different. The 20s was very concerned with these Western forces that were going on, influencing society. By the time we hit the 30s, the Japanese empire is about to invade and politics turns very domestic. So because of that, it kind of helped me put these characters in what was still the same city, but almost a different setting. And I think that shows different parts of their personality that I didn't quite get at in the original duology. This is more of a a backstage question, but I know when we write our characters, it's really fun to, you know, dig really deep into the backstory. And we do a lot of below the surface iceberg writing that never makes it into the story because thank goodness nobody wants 300 pages on (laughs) where my character came from. Yeah, not until, you know, the the most famous day, but how much of that, I'm curious, made it into Foul Lady Fortune? How much of it translated from the character development you'd already done for the first two books? I think a lot of it was dependent on the character development in the first two books. But at the same time, I really wanted a spinoff to feel like a new entry point, as we had mentioned earlier, right? So I didn't want new readers to feel like they were missing out on anything. Uh, So the way that I treated it was if you were aware of Rosalind's backstory coming into Fallity Fortune, it kind of gives you that extra bit of awareness. But for anyone who isn't following they they're not losing out on anything in the same way that i think as a 
you know, Shakespearean retelling. It's also like for any English majors coming in, if they've read the play, they're kind of catching this extra th like thread going along it. At the same time, for anyone who hates Shakespeare, if they go into it, they're not really losing anything by not understanding like certain references or certain like thematic, you know, motifs that are carried out throughout it. So yeah, I, I went in with, I think, a desire to work with the character arc that had already been built for her in the first duology. And then for other characters, it became an opportunity to show even more that didn't necessarily appear as much in the first two books. So Elisa is a main character in Valley Fortune, and she's kind of just this little 12-year-old running throughout a few of the chapters in the original duology. But in Foul Lady Fortune, I kind of had more of the room to work with her as, you know, by, by then she's 17. She might be 16. I don't remember. She's 16, 17. Th there's this room to kind of pick at these things that I could only really, you know, like headcanon, like in the original duology, being like, huh, when she grows up, maybe this is this. All of these things that you kind of envision, like as the author behind the page. And then you kind of get the opportunity to like, okay, now if we put her in the sitting, what does that look like? And can we actually make that work? That's really interesting. So we talked a little bit earlier about stretching into a new genre. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like how can, how can authors stay close enough that they're keeping people in, but also bring in those new readers? Yeah, that was also something that really, all really good questions of things I really, really considered like um, before doing the spinoff. Because I think genre is one of those things that when you're in traditional publishing, it feels so rigid, but then you actually sit down with books, you know, other people's or your own, and you realize that genre is actually really like malleable. Like you, you put in certain aspects of a story and suddenly you're like, huh, it's kind of, I kind of turned this into a science fiction a little, but you know, you don't, you don't advertise it that way. So for me, I'm already a bit of a cross-genre writer. I really like taking different conventions from different types of storytelling, kind of just mashing it together and seeing what works together and what doesn't. So to begin with, These Violent Delights got slotted as a YA fantasy, but in technicality, it's kind of a YA historical sci-fi. And I really, I really wanted to kind of work with that flexibility because as we went into Fallady Fortune, I was thinking, okay, you know, the big aspect that made this previous duology fantastical was a monster running around. If we remove that, what are we left with? And what does that, you know, what genre can we kind of push that into? So given that I kind of swapped a monster out for spies, chemical experiments, you know, intrigue, I realized, okay, this kind of takes a turn into historical thriller more than anything. And I'm kind of going to try embrace that as much as I can while keeping that through line of the reason why I felt like I could naturally deviate um, in that way, right? So, you know, not to say that I'm still getting miscategorized as why fantasy everywhere for this book. It's not out yet <laughs> at the moment that we're recording this, but anytime I see like the early reviews, it's like, oh, it's a YA fantasy. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'm just, I'm going to, I'm going to let that slide. I'm going to let that slide. So yeah, it's, it's one of those things where, it's like identifying the core things that kind of push like the first works into what category it sat in and then and then going from there and just seeing however you know the market does what the market wants genre is always one of those things where they just they put you into it <laughs> I, yeah i feel like genre is mostly a marketing mm. it's a way to sell books rather than a 
a really try yeah. like I mean people think they know what they like until they read something that's all like I think about Gideon the Ninth which is sci-fi fantasy space lesbians like I don't know I don't even know where to put it on the shelf and I was always surprised whenever I remember Gideon was wearing sunglasses I was like where did she get those <laughs> and I mean like uh, Patrick Ness's Chaos Walking is another one where I'm like it's in space but there's like magic yeah so I, I love that you're playing with that and that you aren't afraid to like just be like nope this is a thriller you guys can try and make a fantasy but whatever exactly, exactly. <laughs> so uh, this next question kind of takes us in a different direction genre can open up such a, a big debate and I, I love that but how can authors use world building uh, or belief systems or magic systems whatever systems are built in with this world as a way to expand the scope of the original story is it a one and done type of thing? You know, you have to stay in the limits you kind of set up already in the first series. I think, I mean, I think it depends so much, right? Uh, because world building is one of those things where so many people have different opinions on it. And I think it also comes down to the reader because sometimes you'll hear world building should only be included for whatever is relevant to the story. And other times you're going to hear World building should be whatever is interesting, and the details that you include are what actually makes the story. And the both of them are kind of right in, you know, certain ways. I think world building is a tool that authors should feel like they can use to whatever extent serves them, which I think is a bit of a cop-out answer to be fair, but <laughs> it's, it's the, it's the in-between. It's the in-between. In my experience, I, I really loved using world building in the original duology to get a feel for the 20s as a time period and to just set the scene. And I, I noticed as I was writing Foul Lady Fortune, I really liked using aspects of world building to kind of show how different it was rather than start from like start from scratch. Because I just as I was reading in later revisions, there were many passages that weren't just talking about the 30s in itself. It was talking about the growth and the change and what felt different since the 20s, I guess. So it was, again, one of those things where I was, I was hoping to serve the original reader who had already lived through the 20s, I guess, like with these books. And they were, you know, being able to realize, oh, I see what you're talking about. But then you readers hopefully don't feel like they're missing out on anything. They're kind of just being given world building as a indicator of the change currently happening in that world. You start in the day, everything changes, right? Even if it's a slow change, like decades worth, or <laughs> a couple of years exactly. anyway. Yes. We're about out of time. Chloe, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Such a great conversation about spinoffs. I definitely learned something. As our final question then, what final words of encouragement would you leave to those listening who are writing? Good question. That's always that. Sometimes I'm like, I wish someone could just give me like motivational words every so often. Like, because I'm like, what words do I give other people? Right. It's probably the ones that I need to hear the most. I think to really believe in the rewriting process. I think I'm saying that now because I need to tell myself that because so often so much of writing is in the rewriting and it can feel like you're breaking a book or it can feel like you're making it worse or it can feel like you're losing your hold on all the multiple threads that are going on in the manuscript. But in my experience, rewriting something has only ever made it stronger. And I think being able to kind of pick something apart and then put it back together, you know, Frankensteining a manuscript 
It really, really helps it grow stronger. And I think the more I tell myself that, the more I can motivate myself through fixing something. So I hope it helps someone out there looking at their manuscript. I love it. <laughs> the perfect answer. I second that heartily. I was just thinking that like being in the revision process of a manuscript is almost like being in a depressive episode where you're like, I can't imagine the end of this. I can't imagine this being mm-hmm. better. But then you get past it and you're like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. it's okay. <laughs> we yeah. got through you're this. Like, oh, I, I made it. I made it to the yeah. end. <laughs> there you go. Wise words. They will all be okay. <laughs> so listeners, be sure to keep an eye out for Foul Lady Fortune and pick it up wherever you get your books. Also, be sure to check out our shop on litservicepodcast.wixsite.com or on caitlinsangster.com. We've got fantastic books with stenciled edges. They're beautiful. Right now, we have signed special editions of Marissa Meyer's Gilded Duology on sale. So be sure to check those out. If you want to tell us your answer to our introduction question, who would you want to be in a Shakespeare play versus which character you actually are, you can post it in the comments of our episode announcement on Instagram. The one that makes us laugh the most might win something. So thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.